This is Abrupt Future, the podcast that explores the digital, distributed, and disruptive workplace with your host, Benoit Hardy-Vallet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Abrupt Future. We are now starting our second season, and I'm speaking today with David Collins. David, you are a professor of human resources management at Dublin City University, as well as a consultant to different organizations around the world on talent management and other topics. So first of all, David, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Hey, it's my pleasure, Benoit, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I was reading in one of your paper in 2021, you wrote, the pandemic creates an unprecedented opportunity to elevate the status of the HR function in organizations where it has struggled to gain status and to reinforce the influence of the function in those where it already enjoys legitimacy. All right, lot to unpack, but the bottom line is that, yes, it elevated the status. So now that we have even more perspective on the pandemic or whether we are still in it or, or after it, but how do you see now HR elevating its, its status? To put it in context, the research we did was with a group of, of senior HR leaders globally, mostly chief human resource officers, uh, kind of half in the US and half in Europe. And during the first three or four months of the pandemic, we tracked their experiences. So they gave us weekly updates in terms of what their challenges and priorities were. Uh, and, and we kind of saw their role evolve through that time. And, and I guess it's pretty well established that, you know, at its core, that the pandemic was a human crisis. And for organizations, that was different to the financial crisis of, of, of a decade ago. It was different to the Y2K crisis a decade before that, which put kind of finance and IT professionals in the front line. Here we had HR professionals really core to the discussion around how do we kind of maintain business continuity, yet keep our people safe. Uh, and I think there was so much uncertainty and so much fluidity in the situation at the start um, that, that leaders often struggled to manage and to know how to operate in those contexts. And our research showed that, that HR leaders were really the partners that CEOs and other C-suite leaders leaned on when they had to make these critical decisions in the absence of data and in the absence of precedent. And for us, we saw that, that those organizations that managed better in those early days were characterized by a couple of things. One was they really lived their values. So they had a clear set of values which helped them inform decisions when they didn't have precedent and they didn't have data. So given what we know and what we stand for as an organization, how will we make this decision? The second thing we saw that they were willing to reevaluate those decisions. So, so a number of HR leaders said, you know, traditionally when they walked into a, a, you know, an executive team meeting, they were reluctant to say, I don't have the answer or you know, what we decided three days ago, and it literally was often that quick in the early days of the pandemic, was wrong and we need to start again. So that that maturity and, and willingness to say we were wrong, we need to look again. And the third thing we saw in those organizations that did a really good job was great communication. And it seems simple, right? Um, but it was a willingness to share the basis on which they made decisions and a willingness to listen to people in the organization. And they were some of the things that came across consistently in organizations that did a better job. 
Um, I think the other reason HR really came to the fore is they were dealing with a much wider range of issues. So in a lot of the, the organizations we were working with, the HR leader was often the lead on the crisis management team. They were interacting with, with medics. They were interacting with scientists. Uh, they were interacting with facilities and, and health and safety to a much greater degree than they were in the past. And often those, those, those sub-support teams were reporting to the HR leader directly. So with that breadth of knowledge, with that increased uh, uh, focus and help to the leadership team in terms of decision-making and, and ju- just leading through the crisis, and obviously that real balance between business continuity and the well-being of people. Do you think it's going to stay post-COVID, right? Was that a fluke like, hey, there's a big crisis, HR, please come help us. Okay, crisis is gone. You, here's the door. We'll see you at the next crisis. Yeah, that's, that's such a great question and such an important question, actually, because it would be a shame to waste this opportunity. You know, never waste a, never waste a good crisis. I think we've seen a couple of things, right? So first of all, we've seen some sorting. So we've seen some HR leaders that, realized that they were a poor fit with the culture of their organization in terms of some of the decisions that organizations made and, and how they handle the crisis. So we've seen some, certainly in, in our network, some HR leaders leave organizations where there was a poor fit. We've also seen a smaller number of situations where maybe some HR leaders just didn't work out and you know were kind of almost found out. But that, that was the exception, to be fair, in, in the organizations we were working with. Um, for me, I think that the key to the to the longevity of this influence is being able to shift from that reactive focus that was at the core of the crisis response to that longer term strategic orientation. Uh, and, And certainly the conversations we're having with HR leaders, a lot of that is about trying to shift the conversation from, from HR as a cost function, which typically was seen as to really building the value case of HR and really doing a better job of showing and demonstrating how HR adds value. So, so part of that is that in analytics and doing a be- better job with the metrics we use to kind of track what we do and track the long-term impact of that. And I think the second part of that is the storytelling skills that go with it um, so that those HR leaders are truly having the, inf- the, the influence they, they can within the leadership team in the, the organization. So analytics are the first part of the story and, and data in general. Uh, and the second part is really framing those data in a way that, that is building that business case for the value of HR. And certainly my sense is that many of the metrics we used in the past to track what we did as HR professionals kind of reinforce that cost basis, you know, time to hire, cost per hire. Uh, that suggests it's good to do it cheap and it's good to do it quickly. You know, I'm much more interested in how that hire turns out in two years' time or 12 months' time. Um, and, and there's so many more examples. That, that, that's just a, an obvious example. Yeah, because when you look at the metrics that predict or anticipate business results, right? I mean, in the industry, we know for years that things like engagement or experience or however you measure it, they, these are leading metrics. And yes, if you look at the easily measurable, like the time to hire or time time in role, well, you, you're typically looking in the, in the back mirror and then you, you know, it has value, you can make assessment. But for years, people in the engagement industry have been saying we need to use that to anticipate, to predict how the business will go in the long term. And hopefully this time we're going to start bringing those kind of metrics. And I think organizations that don't do that will lose it because now there is a global conversation on and then 
pick your favorite title, right? The Great Resignation, Quiet Quitting, or whatever that is. But clearly, there's a new age of the employee that's shaping up or a global conversation on employee well-being. And now I don't think we're going to be able to, to ignore those type of metrics. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So it's really using some of those metrics to try and identify areas where uh, well-being is likely to be an issue, for example, or where attrition is likely to be a particular issue. So predictively trying to identify where where those trends are going and, and create some interventions to try and prevent those, those outcomes. I, I think the other thing we're seeing is the pace of change is so quick that, that HR teams need to be more agile. Uh, and we need to be experimenting more. So, you know, um, being prepared to try stuff out uh, in in particular parts of the business, uh, come up with min- minimum value, uh, prop- viable propositions, products, um, see how they go and track the data in terms of how they work that out and use that as a business case for changes in the organization rather than going all in with a massive organizational change without really having tested it in, in, in a smaller part of the business. Um, and, and, you know, if you think of the, the transition we're going through now in terms of HR, you know, the, the hybrid working is a great example of that. You know, I, I, my sense is a lot of organizations, and I can understand why, because people want certainty, nail their colors to the mast or, or were very strong very early. This is what it will look like. Well, we're still learning a lot about it, right? And we, we know it works reasonably well for certain types of work, but actually the data suggests, and it's intuitive, that it doesn't work so well for other types of work and creates some other types of tension. So, so for me, those organizations that are willing to say, here's what we're going to try for now. Here's what we're going to track in terms of what works and what doesn't. And we're going to be open and we're going to listen to feedback. Uh, and we're going to reevaluate that in three months time or six months time. To me, that's a much more approach to kind of finding our way in terms of what that in this particular instance, hybrid working looks like, rather than coming out with this big strategy, you know, here's what it's going to look like forever for us. We just don't know, right? We're still learning. And I, I've yet to meet an organization who truly knows what, how it's going to play out. Look at the difficulty Apple are having right now in terms of you know, trying to persuade people to come back to the workplace. And I think part of that, again, back to the storytelling is doing a poor job of saying why we want people in the workplace. We start a discussion with two days or three days or Tuesdays and Thursdays, rather than here's what happens better in the workplace and here's why we want you together at this part of the week or this part of the week. And here's the stuff we think that can happen perfectly regardless of where you are. So so kind of creating some, I guess, guardrails for, for why we would be in the office versus not. Uh, and equally what we can and can't do at home. So so I think that agility, that willingness to try stuff out, to fail quickly, to react, I think is is hugely important as we think about where, where the function is going. And maybe just a quick digression to, to come back to the metrics, right? A lot of the metrics on, on engagement, experience, well-being, oftentimes traditionally it's tracked through survey. We ask people, and in many behavioral science, we're trying to infer preference, right? Like reveal preference in economics or all the behavioral economics of measuring how people behave. Do you think one day we'll get to a state where we move a little bit from surveying 
people say every week or every day because even if the employee survey got really shorter i think we're all becoming slightly intolerant right to to even answering a five question survey i mean 10 years ago it was a 50 question but now even five work if it's every week it feels like over and over and again and and yet we we need to understand how people feel and experience work and and i don't think we could put them into a a uh, fmri machine every week to to gauge their feeling so so what's the next best thing to to infer or deduce uh, their experience no you're so right and 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 you know this is beyond my competence in terms of i'm not a behavior yeah no i'm exploring (laughs) but yeah for sure like i think the traditional model of measures of engagement is, is not for, fit for purpose anymore. If you think about the context of home working, if I'm somebody that's working at home, there are so many incentives for me to suggest that that's a good thing because I don't have to commute. I, I like working at home for the most part, or certainly people want the flexibility to work at home. So if I'm answering an, a, 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 a survey about engagement, of course I'm going to say I'm engaged because I want to continue to have that flexibility. So, so even how truthfully people, and I think the same is true when you look at measures of productivity, for example, you know, there's been a lot of kind of media coverage on the idea that productivity has maintained or improved. But actually, when you drill into some of the limited empirical data that's there, it actually suggests that productivity may have declined. Output may have improved or output may have been maintained, but people are doing it by working longer hours. They're spending the time they would have spent commuting, working. They're spending, their, their days are extending because we don't have those natural breaks at the start and the end of the day when we need to come to the office or, or leave the office. So so actually some of that data are, are actually um, not really as clear as people suggest in terms of intent, uh, increases in productivity. So I think we really need to think carefully about what we're measuring and how we're measuring it. And, and science is evolving so quickly that there are more and more um, emerging technologies that will help us to do that. As I say, the specifics of the technologies are beyond my competence, but, but for sure, they're questions we need to be thinking about. We can't rely on, on Likert scale surveys to, to tell us how our people really are doing. It, it's, 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 uh, it's just not accurate enough. For for knowledge worker, I found it interesting that now that the whole company is on the same platform, well, at least you can track, you know, how many meetings people have and and whether they are, you know, weak ties or strong ties. Are they talking with a small network across departments? So to me, it was a start of a behavioral science of or an applied behavioral science of uh, of engagement. Uh, For sure, and again, like you know, you've obviously read that research too. It's also not very supportive of of the the uh you know virtual working being this kind of uh, solution to so many problems we know virtually your weak ties are become weaker and you double down on your close ties we know that you know there's huge amount of interruption to our work days through meetings and pings on on platforms and the like and we know from research on productivity how long it takes us to get back to task when we're interrupted by those things. So actually, there's a lot of research that suggests that, that these platforms, while great in enabling work on one level, also create a, a kind of digital overload in some ways that challenges particularly focus time to work us on, on focus type jobs. So, so they're there to kind of recreate the office environment. But actually, if we design work properly, we should be doing work at home that we don't need the office environment. Or, and it should be that time for focus work where we're not getting all these pings and we're not getting all these interruptions, at least not for the entire day. 
Um, so again, it comes down to this evolving understanding of how we design work um, for the home versus the workplace, and et cetera. Now that we're toward the end of, of the story, I, I hope in terms of uh, COVID, are we able to say that there's a certain area of HR that has been more impact or, or transformed? And again, HR is has a lot of component and impact vary by industry. Sure. So I know it's a complicated question, but is there two or three things that comes to mind for you? Yeah, well, well I think the discussion we, we've been having about hybrid work and work design is certainly one. And I think that one where, you know, if you were if if you or I were to argue, you know, three years ago that people would be consistently working from home in professional contexts multiple days a week, and that would be the, the default in a lot of organizations, nobody would have taken us seriously, right? Nobody would have believed us. It wasn't possible. Um, so I think that kind of work design and the balance between home and the workplace, I think is certainly one. And it's certainly one that continues to evolve. It's certainly one that we're learning more about. And we've some way to go on that journey. So I think that's definitely one. I think the second one is culture and how we think about culture in the absence of the interactions that typically helped us learn uh, about the organization um, on a day-to-day basis, reinforce what was important in the organization. We did some research during the pandemic on virtual internships, for example. Uh, and interestingly, what we saw in the first year of the pandemic, a lot of organizations actually canceled their internship programs because they weren't confident in their ability to deliver um, an experience for those students that would meet their expectations in terms of, of showcasing the culture of the organization and giving them the development experience that, that they typically would have. Um, but those organizations that did persevere and were, were kind of, back to the earlier point, more agile and, and more willing to try stuff, actually they ended up being relatively successful in terms of what they were doing and, and quite positive about th- their internship programs. So it was really interesting to see it. But again, part of that was like really being much more deliberate about creating connections for people. So pre-populating people's diaries and inductions. So they would meet with their work team to help them understand their work task, but wider groups within the organization to, to learn about the culture and values of the organization, about trying to replicate some of the social aspects of internship programs true kind of online events, which of course were not as effective as they were. But equally, we saw that that nine managers had to be much more deliberate about the allocation of tasks and the like, which which often happened organically uh, in internship programs. Uh, and, and another benefit was, and, and we saw this in a number of ways, greater access to senior leaders who weren't on planes five days a week uh, and were around for inductions and engagement with people. You know, we even had organizations where, where leaders we spoke to say, felt that the interns got more access to some of the senior leaders than they did as partners because, you know, it was just so structured in terms of the internship programs. So, so I think organizations are having to be much more deliberate about how they build these connections, build these networks, how they kind of reinforce what 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 matters and what's valued in terms of culture and values of the organization. So, so there's certainly two that I've changed have changed fundamentally. There's lots of other ones like we, we all see the debate about reward and whether we start to pay people differently based on where they are. You know, I think that's a slippery slope personally, and uh, I I you know I think um, it will be interesting to see how that play out plays out in organizations that try it. Um, 
and so many more. And I should say, I think in terms of the hybrid working, my expectation is the pendulum will shift more back towards uh, people being in the office a little bit more than it is now. It, the, the balance of power seems really with employees in the public narrative right now. Uh, and I think as we understand what works and what doesn't better uh, over time, uh, I, I think the pendulum is likely to shift a bit further back. Especially if we enter a recessionist period that might change the equation. Of course, that presumes that by default, every management team wants their employee in the office. This is at least what the news media lead us to believe, right? And I think it might be a bit more complex. Nuanced, right? More nuanced than that, for sure. Not every organization, but it, it, it'll be interesting to see where the pendulum lies. Yeah, no, I mean, for, for sure, the, the question of innovation... Um, has been at the forefront of that that conversation. Because yes, deep work, nothing, especially if you're a knowledge worker, nothing beats the the, the quite uh, yep. s- silent uh, pace of your own environment. When again, when you can afford it or when you have a comfortable environment, right? Obviously, some people are not in that situation and that's another challenge. And, and these are people who would um, appreciate the the uh, the office. I was reading, for example, in France where I live, <clears throat> when it was too hot this summer, people went back to the office and drove, because well, how how else am I going to escape the thirty five uh, degrees Celsius when nobody has uh, AC? Uh, well, maybe it's not the best reason to go in an office, but it is a reason. Other people appreciate the the change of scenery. You know, when you count it twice every crack in your wall, maybe it's time to, uh, you know, get out of your, your island and, and be in the real world a little bit. You're so right. And, and I think that point reinforces that there's not a one-size-fits-all answer here. Firstly, from an employee's point of view, you know, I know early in the pandemic, we did some research with teams and organizations and about 20, 25 to 30% of people wanted to come back into the office about 25, 20, 20, 25% of people never want to see an office again and the rest were somewhere in the middle, right? So, so that's from the employee perspective. I think to your point on innovation and, and, and the like, it's interesting to see the drive in the tech companies now, for example, to get people back into the office. You know, some of the early movers were, were the, the banking and finance organizations who were concerned about the, the kind of risk and compliance concerns of people being out of the office. Now we see the tech companies, and, and to a degree at least, that's driven by innovation concerns. So again, you know, different sectors think about this differently, different organizations, but equally from a personal perspective, we all have different priorities. And, and the narrative is, is very singular in, in the public the public narrative it's you know everybody wants this flexibility and it's good everyone's a winner right and that's not necessarily the case yeah i mean hopefully it should converge toward a state where the the employers trust the employees and the employees make the smart decision and and balance these different tools right the working from home a remote location working in a non-synchronous fashion as well because well not everything needs to happen in real time maybe some job can be done in different um time zone not everything needs to be a live interaction so i think that hopefully the world of work evolve where that toolkit approach or swiss knife approach where you use this different way of organizing how you work and but i don't think we have settled toward an equilibrium yet it's still a research period i completely agree completely that's a nice way to think about it for sure and one of the the big learning here you know if i if i summarize some of what you said is that HR has 
had to learn how to think with agility, right? Because beyond the buzzword, it I mean, you literally didn't know how the world would be evolving in the next two days or, or three days. So it's not a and it's not about learning the agile techniques or going through certification. It's almost most of a mindset of can we do something good enough that holds for a few days and then revisit, right? Which is a way of, again, in military terms, is thinking more like elite force than the big army logistics, right? You you see, you plan a little bit and then you readjust and you are willing to throw a plan, but at least you you have one. So that clearly made it important for HR. And it sounds like the world keeps throwing other uncertainties at us between another pandemics or epidemics and then war. And then who knows what's going to be the next disruption and new technology that takes over the world, right? So are we globally becoming better at managing that uncertainty in HR? Yeah, are we better... um... I think we have to be better. We have no choice. Whether we're there or not yet is, is another question. Um, I, I think it really comes back to HR being being better at adopting that longer-term focus. So getting out of the weeds of managing in a responsive way and and trying to manage that tension between you know keeping the lights on and business continuity and, and planning as best we can for the future. So, so I've always been a fan of scenario planning where we try to make a best guess of some of the things that are coming down the line. And, and you know, people used to talk about VUCA world, you know, three, four years ago. Like that was, that was easy, right? I wish. There was no, yeah, exactly. We wish for sure, right? And, and, and you're so right. Challenge on challenge has come up over the last couple of years. So, so I don't think we can ever have a perfect insight, but, but tools like scenario planning at least give us a way of thinking about what might come down the tracks and, and putting some different scenarios and different possibilities on the table. I, I think, you know, the, the importance of agility for sure. I think the importance and values in terms of helping us make those decisions in those uncertain environments. So I think organizations having a very clear sense of how they will go about making decisions. You know, not what the decision is, because, because that, that, that we can predict, but how will we make those decisions? So decision making becomes hugely important. And, and, you know, the idea of values based decision making, here's how we frame our decisions. The importance of, of communicating and, and keeping people with you on that journey, I think, is huge as well. So, so the future, it, you know, it, look at look at even just the pace of change of the future of work, which was which had all been accelerated so much over the last couple couple of years. You know, we saw industries where you know uh, which were traditionally brick and mortar based retail transition being forced to transition to fully online for periods of time, and you know. The, the amount of transformation in, in months was the equivalent of what we would have expected in years. The change in skill set required in those industries and organizations. You know, there's so many different pressures on uh, HR in terms of thinking about what the future looks like. So, so that agility is really core and, and kind of trying to, to create some space and time to scenario planner for, for what's coming around, down the line and, and put in place some of those skill sets to, to help to deliver in a more dynamic and, and agile way. And I know you are a, a, um, 
a prolific uh, author and busy uh, consultant. What else are you working on these days? If we look in the next few years in terms of your research interest around HR and talent management, yes, what are we're you looking, looking at? Yes, we're looking at a couple of things. So, so I'm, I'm really interested in the future of mobility in organizations. So global mobility is an area I've, I've done a lot of research in the years. So again, you know, we were forced to change how how we manage global organization global operations in organizations you know some of the organizations i was working with prior to the pandemic were thinking about this through a sustainability lens for example and recognizing that the amount of business travel that they were doing was leaving a large environmental footprint um, but there was often huge resistance from the leaders who felt you know they, they weren't really working if they weren't on a plane so, so we've had this kind of reset in terms of, of what travel is, but I think it's been interesting to see in organizations how quickly people are, are, are jumping on planes and, and how quickly business travel budgets are, are blowing up again post-COVID. And I, I'm working with a couple of organizations who are really trying to sense check that and think about, you know, well, what's the balance between people having to physically be together and not? And that can be, you know, in client relationships it can be in leadership development so many areas so, so that's that's one area we're interested in um i'm involved in some research for the irish government at the moment looking at kind of skills-based approaches to hr so you know if back to the agility idea you know so much of what how we thought about hr in the past was quite rigid job descriptions the amount of experience you needed break down some of those barriers and fundamentally focus on skills as a lens what does that mean in terms of you know recruitment, development, uh, even reward? So so kind of changing our thinking about changing our level of analysis from jobs to skills, uh, and then the third project I'm working on kind of linked to that is you know as we think about kind of things like internal talent marketplaces and the allocation of work in organisations, where again even within organisations, so people like John Boudreau would talk about the end of employment and complete fluidity almost i i i'm less convinced we'll end up there but but i think we are seeing more fluid relationships in organizations but what does that mean for my identity as a as an employee my identity as a worker what does it mean for you know uh, how i'm evaluated and how i'm developed um so kind of building on that skills idea and that kind of breakdown in traditional job design what does that mean for individuals and how can we find a way that it works for both individuals and organizations? So probably the three big things I'm working on. And not to get too geeky, but on the third one, I'd be curious also to cross-reference that with culture, right? Because you have a certain culture where you are who you are in every aspect of your life. And in other words, they have a more fluid understanding of your identity. You could be something at work and you are a different or you have a different identity at home. So what happened then when those different cultures start to have different kind of social contract or job contract, um, you know, another area to explore, I guess. And maybe a last question for you. Where can we learn more about your, your work? Is there a, an easy way to, to follow yeah, you well, on online? LinkedIn, so feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. Um, so uh, they're probably the two best social media. Feel free to reach out to me on email. It's david.collings at dcu.ie. I'm sure we can share it online. Um, but yeah, please, please connect. Please reach out. I'm, I'm always looking to, to connect um, and, and network. So 
look forward to people connecting. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It was a great uh, conversation. I know I learned uh, a lot. I'm sure people who listen will learn as well. Oh, it's my pleasure, Benoit. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Abrupt Future. You can find more content at abruptfuture.com and on our LinkedIn page. Thank you.